opportunity to introduce a friend or a colleague to another person. And if you were to consult a book, or more likely in these days a website, uh, you'd find rather detailed instructions in the proper way to make an introduction. Now all of that uh, formality or all that information really is uh, quite useful to you and it can make situations like that more comfortable for you and those you are introducing. The point of it all, however, is to help people to get to know each other. And that begins when they know each other's name. But it doesn't stop there. So it's always good to add some information when you make it an introduction, such as John here is in engineering, or Sylvie is a school teacher, or the Smiths have three children in grade school. But those things are really only the beginning. People get to know one another, and they spend time together. And the more time you spend with them, the better chance you will have to really get to know them. And if you spend enough time with them, you will learn of their hopes and their dreams and their fears and all the kinds of things that shape them and make them the people that they are. And more than that, you'll begin to understand the people that they are becoming. You see, we're not static beings. We all know that children are growing and changing. We like to think of them as blossoming. But so are adults, at least we hope they are. It's rather a sad thing to meet someone who stopped growing. None of us has really arrived yet. There's always room for improvement, and if you don't like that term, we could rephrase it to say there's still room for us to grow in our wisdom, or we can mature more and gain in our depth of insight into life. For the Christian, we would say we want to become more like Jesus. And as we become like him, since he is light, then we become his light bearers. Once we become a believer, we already are, in a sense, Jesus has put it this way, that we are the light of the world, as we read in our scripture reading this way. But the more we become like him, the brighter his light shines in us. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, talks about being light bearers. He doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about. If we want to shine for Jesus, it would be helpful for us to hear what he has to say to us. So I'm going to ask that you would join me once again in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, where we're going to be considering verses, I believe it's 12 through 18. It'll be on the board on either side of me as we go through this. Paul uh, was introduced to the Philippians in a rather unusual way, and We've talked about it before, and we're not going to go over it again now. But their relationship deepened over time. They really got to know one another, and there was a great love and friendship that developed between them. And we see that relationship displayed at the end of our passage today from about the middle of verse 16 uh, through the end of 18. And what we see in that short uh, section of Scripture is a boasting a reminder 
a rejoicing and a possibility. And we're going to look at each of those things just briefly this morning because it helps to put what Paul has to say about being a light bearer into its context. So when we first pick up this passage in the middle of verse 16, the language will sound a little strange to our ears, so we have to translate it into our own idiom. Paul has just told the Philippians some things they ought to do, which we'll look at shortly, and then he says in the middle of verse 16, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You know, that change between our cultures and our different idioms almost makes it sound as if Paul was really not so much concerned about the Philippians as he was about himself. He wanted to be able to brag. That's what it sounds like when we read that. But having spent time with Paul as we have uh, through his letters and as we've read the scriptures in our own uh, our personal devotions, we know that's not the case. See, Paul was saying to the Philippians something like, I want to be able on the day of Christ to rejoice because you lived as you should have lived in this world. Maybe we can paint the picture something like this. Paul is standing there with Jesus, and he says, Look, Lord, I didn't work in vain. Look at your people. Look at the way they lived in that dark. And as always, Paul was more concerned about his friends than he was about himself. That's the boasting that Paul was talking about, which we see in this pastor passage. And, and that's followed by, by a reminder in the beginning of verse 17. He says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice coming from your faith. See, Paul's remembering where he is. He's in prison. And he's awaiting sentences. He may be set free, he hopes that he will be, but there's a real possibility that he will die in prison for his faith. That's what he means when he says uh, he's being poured out, might be poured out like a true author. Here's a man writing to people that he loves, knowing that these may be his last words to them. And he's not going to waste time on trivialities, and he going to speak to them from his heart. Yet there's also a rejoicing here in the midst of all this. In the rest of verses 17 and 18, we begin at the beginning of verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, in spite of his situation, and we've seen this before in this letter also, Paul uh, has things to rejoice on, one of which is the Philippians themselves. He, he rejoices with them, and he wants them to be glad in spite of where Paul is and in spite of the things that they were going through. He wants them to rejoice with him. And so there's this boasting and this reminder of rejoicing. And now I want to tell you about a possibility and it involves those words in verse 17. Listen again. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. You know, those are difficult words. Just what do they mean, the sacrifice and service coming from your faith? 
But one possibility is that since the Philippians themselves were going through persecution, the way they were living was a sacrifice to God. And Paul's own death, well, should it come, it was simply something that was added to the Philippians and what they were already offering. They were, after all, and Paul says they were, partners with him in the gospel. And that makes really good sense. There's another possibility. It makes better sense to the passage. I have to tell you, you won't find it in any commentaries anywhere, but that's okay, because we know it's only a possibility. But you know, it's quite possible that in some manner, the Philippians themselves were responsible for Paul being in prison. Not to betray or anything like that, but because of some ministry which Paul was doing for them or on their behalf. And that had led him to conflict with the authorities and hence into prison and now he's facing the possibility of a death sentence. Things like that have happened since then. We sent out a missionary and he or she goes to a country or some region in the country and they get into trouble because they preach, they proclaim, they minister in the name of Jesus Christ on the sacrifice and service of our faith. Now, if that possibility is true, then what Paul is doing in these few verses that we've looked at is he's comforting the Philippians here. He's saying this, I, I'm in a bad place here, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. We have a lot to be grateful for. So cheer up. We belong. Instead of boasting, a a reminder, a rejoicing and a possibility right here at the end. And and all of that, that relationship between Paul and the Philippians, I think will help us to understand what Paul has just said to them, which we're going to look at next. It will help to put Paul's words into their real context, which is that of a loving pastor writing to his friends. In verse 12, Paul talks about obedience. And he does so immediately after talking about Christ, which we looked at last week, and all that he gave up, and how Jesus himself was completely obedient. And so Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And we're going to stop there for just a moment. See, Paul addresses them here as my beloved. <coughs> the, the NIV translated, my dear friends, but the Greek's really much more intense than that. Paul is reminding them of just how much he loves them. And the obedience spoken about here is not really so much of the Philippians obeying Paul, though, of course, as an apostle, apostle it would be a wise thing on their part to obey him, right? But rather, the obedience is really obedience to the gospel of Christ. See, the Philippians had always obeyed the gospel. In that, they'd also obeyed Paul. But now something really wonderful is occurring. See, they continue to obey the gospel even though Paul was not there with them. Now, watching over their shoulder, and yet they're obeying, they're obeying the gospel. 
You know, our kids, I think, sometimes don't they really seem to think that we want them to obey us? Well, just because we want them to do what we say. I have to tell you, the confession, I, sometimes that's why I told them to do some things. That I just wanted them to do what I wanted them to do. But the truth is, is that we want our children to obey because we want to help them to do what's right and we want to, to protect them from the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that come from doing things they shouldn't do. It's our desire to help them to grow and to, to, to know Christ and walk with Him in this life. That's what it's all about. The Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And he's talking about spiritual children, but that's true for us too and our own children. We want them to obey. And we want them to obey, not just looking at them, not just when we're in the room with them, but whenever they are, whether we're there or not. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He wants the Philippians to continue to obey. And this isn't an authoritarian watching out for his turf. This is a pastor. And he's concerned about the welfare of his people. And the kind of obedience that he's talking about brings this great joy to the heart of a pastor, to the heart of the apostle. We rejoice when people we care about walk with God. We know just how much that means for them and for their good. And so Paul wants them to continue to obey. And then that next phrase tells us what obedience is really all about. You see, it's the working out of our salvation. That is, we're saved. And because we are, we ought to live in a certain way. But we're not the only ones who are involved in that process. God is at work here, too. And so, beginning in verse 12 again, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So continuing to work out your salvation speaks of an ongoing process. In this life, there is no end to it. Not till we're finally glorified will we ever stop working out our salvation. Of course, you do understand, don't you? To work it out, you have to have it to start with. It has to be there to begin with, and that comes from God. So he draws us to himself, and we turn to him in faith. We call on him to save us, and he does. Now, we're going to come back to the fear and trembling in a moment, but notice that God's work doesn't stop once he saves us. He continues working in us. He wills, and he acts, and he does so to fulfill his good purpose in us. And that's where the fear and the trembling come in. Hebrews says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, God means business. He will have his way in us and with us. It'll all be for our good, of course, but that doesn't mean it won't hurt. 
how much it hurts sometimes anyway depends on us I mean we can cooperate with God which makes the process much, much better or we can resist him which makes it unpleasant and is useless by the way because we can't thwart God if we sin we find that there are consequences and chastisement are necessary see becoming like Christ may not be easy but it will be worth it all so we can think of this process that we're talking about right here uh, as though we're a kind of a lump of clay. That's biblical too, by the way. <laughs> so we call on God, and he puts us on the potter's wheel, right? And at that point, we belong to him. We're saved. He's never going to let us go. But then he begins to mold us and to shape us, just as a potter shapes a clay vessel. And if that vessel can talk, I'm sure certainly say to you that at some point it's rather painful such as when excess clay is removed when, when the vessel squeezed into a smaller shape I like that I would tell you that there were times and what was happening was really rather enjoyable we know times like that I think as believers in our walk with Christ it's quiet times with the Lord those wonderful times of fellowship with other believers or but when we experience him in the worship service, and when he seems to be so real that we can reach out and touch him. The difference between a lump of clay and you and me, of course, is that we have a part of the process. But whatever we do, however we act, God will accomplish his good purpose in his people. But just what is it that we're supposed to? Well, we know we're supposed to obey the gospel, but there's something specific. Is there something specific in the context that Paul has in mind? And yeah, there really are two things. And one takes a look back, and the other he will introduce to us in just a moment. And it's for the one that looks back. It looks back in the text, not in time. And we're not going to spend any time on it today because we've already talked about it in this series in the past. But Paul expects us to be united in our hearts and minds. I really wish there were more time to talk about it. That's about all I have, uh, time I have to say anything about that this morning. We need to be, as a church, as the people of God, united. Now, there are other area of obedience that comes next in the text, and, and it takes now on the nature of a warning or a prohibition. And so as we read it, we realize that Paul is telling us to avoid something which is really the first step that we can take to destroying our unity. In verse 14, he writes this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I memorized that in the old NIV as do everything without complaining or arguing, but the meaning really is the same. Do everything is an inclusive statement, you know. There would be no limit set on this injunction. It would include the way we interact with one another in the body of Christ, but lo locally and universally, but it would also include our interaction with people on the outside and in our own families. So we're not to grumble or complain or murmur. And that grumbling could be public, that is out loud, or it could be the kind of thing which happens behind closed doors. And you might think that that out loud kind of grumbling would be the worst, and maybe it is, but at least when we hear it, there's something we can do about it. 
picture of this. Whatever is happening behind closed doors will affect everyone in a very real way now and will become public sooner or later. We're also not to argue, and this isn't the same thing uh, as reasoning. Rather, there's a negative connotation here. Say the references to division or the taking of sides. Reasoning in the sense of trying to understand one another and get to a kind of a common ground is a good thing, but arguing which results from and leads to division is never acceptable. And so Paul warns us against complaining or arguing because it really will destroy unity. It's the first step down onto a low road, but it doesn't stop there. All sorts of bad things follow, and it's better not to take that step. It's better to avoid it altogether. You know what I think helps me to think about this uh, passage? You know that old cartoon gag? Watch that first step, it's a doozy. You remember that, you know? Uh, the character has uh, just turned away and turned the wrong way and takes a step and falls off the cliff and goes flat on the ground. And that's when they make the statement, watch that first step, it's a doozy. And this complaining and arguing that Paul is talking about, he's warning us about, is every bit as serious as falling off a cliff, and unlike in the cartoon, there is nothing funny about it. So let's just stop here for a minute. Let's just try to take a survey. Where, where are we in this text this morning when we look at it? It says this pastor, his name's Paul, and he, he very tenderly tells those he loves, the Philippians, to keep on obeying because God is at work in them to, to keep their unity to avoid that first step down onto a low road which will destroy their unity and break their hearts in the process but if they do that if they maintain their unity if they avoid like the plague those things that will destroy it and well, the text really just simply soars. It, it describes what we begin to look like. Let me read it to you, beginning at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation as you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life. That's what I want to be. A light bearer. I hope that's what you want to be also. The text tells us that we can become that. Avoid grumbling and complaining. And that's what we will become if we maintain that unity, that love that we have for one another. Be completely obedient so we may be blameless and pure. What Christian doesn't want that in their life? Maybe the best way to say what that means is simply to multiply the words. Blameless, faultless, without guilt, pure, innocent of evil, sincere, harmless, marked by integrity. I think about the Old Testament word, uh, use of the word blameless, which, which in this life for us doesn't mean sinless, rather it points to a person who has walked with God 
for a long time and he's taken some of that character into his own heart and soul. He or she's the kind of person that you can count on. We, when we keep our unity and, 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 and don't argue and complain, we, we find that we become children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved world. Of course, once we we put our faith in Christ, we're forever God's children, but we, we don't always act that part. There's this ongoing process of sanctification, and yet we are becoming what we really are. Yeah, we're sinners, but this life that we're living, as we live it in this way, it lifts us into another realm which Paul describes as faultless. We are this, children in a warped and crooked generation. This reminds me of that passage in 1 John that says, in this world, my friends, in this world, this dark world, with all of the sin and all of the hatred and all of the ugliness and all of that around us, we are like Jesus. We're in the world, but we're not of world. We are God's children, and as such, we shine like stars in the universe. The old NIV put it that way. The new NIV says we shine like stars in the sky, meaning the same thing, but but the old way is so much more poetic. It's so much more powerful. We shine like stars in the universe in a dark, dark dark outside. There's no light from the moon. It's cold. And it's clear. And you're out there and you look up. And there you see it. Thousands upon thousands of stars. And they're shining. And darkness is all around it, but they aren't affected by it. They shine. That's what we're like. That's what we're like. That's what we can become as we continue to work out our salvation. We become light bearers, bringing God's light to a dark world. And that's what the text tells us, that we're like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of light. You know, that Greek word there used for hold out can be translated one of two ways. It can mean to hold it out and offer it to someone, or it can mean hold on to it. And you'll see it translated both ways. I think it means both ways here. The way you hold out the word of life is by holding on to it yourself. By holding it out helps you hold it. But if you're a light bearer, that's exactly what you do. You shine. You're children. You're light. I've spent time 
some of you I get to see in different settings. Sometimes I see you at a Wano or maybe Tuesday night prayer meeting. Sometimes just talking to people outside there. I've been here at this church now as pastor, I guess going on five years. It's hard to believe. And maybe not as good as I should. Certainly not as good as I'd like to. I know what this church is like. And I love you. And I feel about you like Paul felt about the Philippians. And I'm not the man he was. But I love you. And there is a unity that exists in this church that is and we have weather storms together. Some of which you don't know, and some of which you do. And God is at work in this church. And we can mess it up by letting that spirit of complaint argue enter our lives. Or when it does not dealing with it. But if we maintain that unity, if, if we keep from taking a step on that miracle, then what you see, what you are, is just light there. You are the light of the world because Christ lives in you. And a city on a hill cannot be. Thanks, Father, for your goodness to us. Thank you that um, you saved us. Not because we deserve anything at all. Nothing. But because you love us. That you do so much more in our lives and offer us so much more. Help us to take from your hand all that you give us and embrace you in the process. Make us like this. Help us to make a difference in our world. In Jesus' name.